Romans chapter 8 may be one of the uh, few, perhaps if you had a number, maybe five or six, of the very pinnacle, the crests of the Bible. Certainly Romans 8 would be among those grand and majestic passages of Scripture that seem to be so comprehensive on the one hand and so pointed and encouraging and affirming not only of the Lord and His glory but also of the absolute certainty of His people and that whom He has called to Himself. And so um, certainly appropriate that you might hear the entire chapter there, uh, or at least most of it anyway, and uh, that we could really set our minds upon this great doctrine, this great uh, resolution, if you will, and that is simply this, uh, to more fully enjoy the fatherhood of God. That may seem perhaps like uh, something that uh, might be odd as a resolution, but nonetheless the reality is is it's likely true of each of us that um, we have some errant understandings of our Father. Uh, that uh, we, we uh, simply, it seems inevitable that we would project upon our Father in heaven some of the unfortunate aberrations, if you will, of earthly fatherhood. We also might have a tendency to accentuate certain passages of Scripture uh, that might not uh, be taken comprehensively in all of the record of the Scripture such that we would also have perhaps a perverted view of this One who has not only created us, who is not only the eternal Judge, but He is also the eternal Father. The Scriptures do not evacuate from the idea of fatherhood that which all of us desperately long for, the kindness, the planning, the persuasion of our Father, the goodness, the purposefulness, the intentionality, the the providence of God, this idea that was read in your hearing that, that He manages from the foundation of the world to not merely take the opportunity for even your own sins and failures, but to precisely and intentionally design them such that He would call you to Himself and work all of those things for your good. Certainly for us, something that we can enjoy. The reality is, is it must be true since uh, we're imperfect beings, that we're not enjoying our salvation as we ought. And so I would encourage you to think upon this, what I'm recommending to you, the third resolution here, to step into more fully your enjoyment of God as Father. Now the reality is is that uh, certainly likely that everyone in this room doesn't have God as Father. While there are some tricky communicators that might imply that God is the Father of all. We know that God is the Creator of all. But to say that God is the redemptive Father of all would be, of course, to cheapen what the Scriptures assure us uh, is that He is the Father of the redeemed and that we can go to Him in faith, even as the Lord Jesus said, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, a promise that I certainly urge you to lean fully into 
if God is not your Father today. And so we look here at Romans chapter 8. If you think about last week, our resolution last week had to do with courage and its direct association with divine providence, all in the context of fear. And now we have this third resolution, this resolution to enjoy the fatherhood of God. And the basis and context of this doctrine of assurance, or rather this doctrine of the fatherliness or the the doctrine of adoption is, is in the context of assurance. It's appropriate that we might ask ourselves, how can I know that I'm redeemed? How can I know that I'm the Lord's child? Because to the extent that we're certain about that, to that extent we will then enjoy the fatherhood of God with certainty, knowing with confidence that He is for us. We often think of matters in terms of security. Our own relationships with one another are uh, undeniably based upon a certain sense of security. Can I trust this person with my thoughts and cares? Will they uh, listen to me uh, with a genuine sincerity and so forth? And part of this concept that we see here uh, with the idea of assurance is not uh, estranged from this idea of security. Can I know the Lord is mine and I am His? Can I know that that I am Christ's, that I am in Him, that through Him uh, I'm enjoying and have access to all of the blessings that God has promised? Hopefully the answer to that for you today would be yes. So as we look toward this concept of the sonship, if you want also to say the daughtership or the adoption, that being a child of God redemptively, Um, We see in verse 12 here, and our focus will be on verses 12 through 17, that Paul's making an argument in verse 12. He says, So then, brothers, we're debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. St. Paul has such certainty with his argument that he is leaving it for us to fill in the second half of that sentence. So then, to what are we a debtor? To the Spirit. To live in the Spirit. And mind you, this is a capital S spirit here. When the Apostle Paul deals with this doctrine of adoption, he deals with it uh, really from the standpoint of justification. Of of really the argument here doesn't have to do with are you currently walking with the Lord faithfully in the process of being sanctified by God. The Apostle John in chapter 1 of his Gospel as well as his letters, deals with the concept of adoption often in terms of sanctification. But that's not what the Apostle Paul is doing here. The Apostle Paul is noting, uh, again, uh, this, this binary situation. Are you saved or are you lost? 
Again, he's not referring to sanctification, but to the whole of our redemption. Are we in Christ? He continues the same theme in verse 13, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. Paul isn't referring to the parental sins of the redeemed. He's referring to those who have uh, yet not entrusted themselves to Christ. He's referring to those who are lost. To die in your sins is to spend an eternity in hell. But to die in the Spirit, you will live. If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So again, the discussion here isn't about whether as a believer you're currently walking faithfully, but the overarching question, are you in Christ? Have you been saved? Sometimes we, we can think about the permanent state of our own relationship with God as that of justification. And if we're thinking about justification as our permanent state, it's very likely uh, that you are projecting upon God not as Father, but as Judge. But that isn't the permanent state that we're in. The permanent state that we're in is an adopted state as children with a father. And so that's what the Apostle is drawing our attention to here. Our permanent state is adoption with God as Father. And again, the Apostle is directing our attention to this very important theme. If we are His children, then He is our Father in heaven then He is for us. He, he delights in us. He, he loves us. He cares for us. He's made plans for us. He's provided for us. Verse 14, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Those who are led by the Spirit are those who are saved. The two terms are synonymous. To be saved is to be led by the Spirit. Again, this is the Apostle Paul's argument. He isn't referring to growing in grace. He's referring, again, to this binary situation. Are you redeemed or are you not? The redeemed will absolutely and certainly know of their redemption because they are very simply led by the Spirit. They're led by the Spirit. That's the, not, not perfectly, of course. Uh, this is no promise for perfection, but nonetheless, he says that those who are redeemed are exactly the same group of people as those who are led by the Spirit. Those who are led by the Spirit. I would like for that to echo in your mind as you leave this place today. Led by the Spirit. Further, if you're saved, you'll begin to take on the nature of your adopted father. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 3. St. Peter says, His divine power is granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him 
who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious, verse 4, and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. It's not exactly casual conversation to be a partaker of the divine nature. Children, the point here is that if God is our Father, then we, we have for ourselves this divine nature, just like children are of the nature of their natural parents. And so, as adopted children of God, we take on the nature of God. This is the idea that St. Paul is getting at here. So what does this sonship imply? Only those who are redeemed, those who are given life in Christ, those, those are the sons and daughters of God. What does it mean to be adopted by A father in heaven. Well, among other things, certainly it involves similarity, as Peter was referring to in his second letter. We begin to take on the nature of God. It involves a likeness. Our kinship with God involves a likeness, a likeness of mind as well as a likeness of outlook. We now look at things from God's outlook. The aspect of eternity. The mind of Christ. 1 Corinthians 2, 14-16 says this, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them, because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. We have God as our Father. He has adopted us into His family. We begin uh, gradually, of course, to take on the likeness of our Father in heaven. And among the aspects of similarity are the mind of our Father, as expressed, of course, in our union with the Lord Jesus Christ. The point of this passage isn't for us to declare our every thought is now holy and perfect, but to indicate that our new birth gives us the new capability of an entirely different perspective, an entirely new way of thinking, an eternal perspective conformed by the Word of God. It also involves behavioral similarities. I would draw your attention to the Sermon on the Mount, for instance, where the Lord Jesus speaks, uh, most particularly in Matthew chapters 5 and 6, where He displays for us the behavior of the kingdom. These, if you will, could be described perhaps as the house rules of our Father in heaven. He doesn't clean us before He catches us. 
but he cleans us after. And these are what he has given to us in order that we might live and enjoy him. It's a great appeal for holy living that we, of course, be children of God. We should note that God doesn't treat all children as he does his own children. As God's children, his love to us is special and peculiar. Special and peculiar. We understand that we can look way back to the Pentateuch and see that we should love our neighbor. But we also understand that none of us who are parents love other people's children more than our own. There is certainly a a gradation. You probably should be thankful for that. That there's a special devotion and love that children share with their parents and that parents share with their children. And that is not untrue for the relationship that God has for His adopted children. The reality is, yes, He brings the rain on the just and the unjust, but the bringing of rain isn't the only expression that God has for the creation. You are special and especially loved by a loving Father who has adopted you. And the Apostle Paul is encouraging us to explore this, to delight ourselves in this wonderful work of God that He, the Father in heaven, loves His children. God takes special care of our well-being. As referenced last week in Matthew chapter 10, verse 30, the very head, hairs of our head are numbered. Now, one of the aspects of fatherhood is this idea of planning. God plans for His children. He persuades His children to follow. His plans for the ultimate glorification of His children with every experience designed to shape into the image of Christ. Corrections and righteousness, the church serving others, all of these things in order to bring us to glory. You see that in this very passage in Romans chapter 8 in verse 30. Those whom He predestined, He also called, and those whom He called, He also justified, and those whom He justified, He also glorified. Your adopted Father has made plans for you from the beginning of all time, and they go out into eternity. That is the planning care of a father. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10, For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. This is God's plan. To bring sons and daughters to glory. To bring sons and daughters to glory. It's not a passive plan. 
God isn't a passive father. He's an active father. He's planned for your future. And He is purposeful in that. We see, alongside planning, that He also chastises us. For we are to see here the loving hand of God. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6, For the Lord disciplines the one He loves and chastises every son whom He receives. It isn't considered exactly correct for people to chastise other people's children. It's one of the aspects of God as our Father, is He chastens those who are His children, those that He loves. Thirdly, we see that He protects us. Perhaps you have had echoing in your mind, I would be there except for the grace of God. Psalm 18.2 says, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. Why have you been kept back? You've had some hard things in your life, no doubt. But the Lord has placed a restraint not only on the ocean, but on the evil that might turn you away from a loving Father. Beyond protecting us, He also restrains us in sin. Psalm 19.13 Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Psalm 141.3 Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. How many times have you been restrained from the sin that would be so harmful? Yes, you have sinned. And yes, you have done harm. But how many times have you been restrained as God's child from persisting in that which would bring such destruction? How many times have you seen the Lord stay your hand or your very mouth in not doing those things that you know are wrong or not saying those things that you know are wrong or not persisting in thoughts that were you to follow them would take you to a very, very bad place. As Father, not only does He protect us, not only does He restrain us in sin, but He also is always ready to receive us and listen to us. I have been authorized by my Master to tell you that He is more ready to give than you are to receive. He is more ready to give than you are to receive as a loving Father. You might think of a very busy man, for instance, a one who might command the pillars of business, one who 
has a calendar that's always full. People want to see him. He says, no, I, I can't see you today. Then he might hear a little tap on his door. And it's his child. And he drops everything. And that is our Father in heaven. Always ready to receive us and listen to us. He helps our prayers. We don't pray truly if we doubt the fatherhood of God, which gives confidence and assurance. So this is really the first section of this uh, six-verse passage here from Romans eight twelve to 17. This idea of really accentuating the fatherhood of God. Who is He? What does it mean that I have God as my Father? What would be the benefits? How can I enjoy Him as Father? How can I explore the majesty and the goodness of His fatherhood? And then secondly, this idea of being led by the Spirit. Verse 16 The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Verse 15, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. How do we know we're sons and daughters of God? Well, you're led by the Spirit. You can ask yourself the question, am I led by the Spirit? Those are sons who are led by the Spirit. Notice there is a certain passivity in this. Those who are led by the Spirit, they're not driven it's an important idea. God doesn't drive us, but He persuades us. He changes our own desires. God wins us. He woos us. God leads us. But you also should realize that He doesn't carry you. There's no seat for you to sit in and be carried into the glories of heaven. No. God calls us as His people on pilgrimage and we are led. The Christian is the one who is on pilgrimage and he's being led. God doesn't put a bearing rein on us and lead us as a bridle on a horse. Psalm 32.9 Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding which must be curbed with bit and bridle or it will not stay near you. The application in Psalm 32.9 isn't for an impoverished believer, it's for an unbeliever. Those who are in Christ are led by the Spirit. Not driven and not carried. They're led by the Spirit. We're in a howling wilderness and we're being led. We're being led. To be led, again, is not to be forced but persuaded. No one comes to Christ or follows Him against their will. We fully embrace the irresistible grace of God. That we don't receive the irresistible grace of God as one who kicks and screams. 
We receive the irresistible grace of God as a hungry little calf follows a farmer with a bucket full of feed. It's irresistible because he's been shaped by his master and creator to follow his father. The Spirit enlightens and persuades. He changes our will. Guided, determined, directed by the Holy Spirit. This is not true of the natural man. This is not true of the natural man. The natural man is not led by the Spirit. The Apostle Paul here and the scriptural writers, when they refer to one who is natural, it isn't, again, it's not someone who has been redeemed but yet living an unredeemed life. This one is a natural man. He is outside of Christ. He's guided by his own desires, by the mind of the world. He does what everyone else is doing. He doesn't think for himself perhaps led by their reason, but this is never enough. There is much willpower and determination. The natural man may be stagnant, may be sitting by while life drains out of him. He may be waiting for something and failing to see his life experiences as shaping opportunities to serve his fellow man. Other natural men are always commanding. Unfortunately, they end up in a worldly domination, more like the Nephilim in Genesis 6 than the refined mighty men of David's inner circle. So busy taking dominion, they forget along the way that they're actually called to follow one, far greater than themselves and far more capable of leading. To be led by the Spirit is not a repudiation of the real leadership one may be called to express among men, but it certainly shapes and defines what sort of leadership men exhibit among men. There are natural leaders. I bid you beware them. I bid you beware of them. There are no natural leaders in the kingdom of God. There are those that follow. There are those that follow. They're led. They're led by the Spirit. Can you say that the Spirit of God is the main direction of your life? That you are perf- that not that you're perfect, but that you're being led and following the Spirit. We're not accentuating natural leadership. We're accentuating spiritual followership. There's much talk today about leadership. I know. I've heard much of it. It's very compelling. The Apostle Paul is urging us here not to focus on leadership, but on being led. Being led by the Spirit. Are we following Christ? Are we following our Master in heaven? Yes, there are many natural leaders. There are many natural leaders. Can you tell that they are following Christ? That's the question. Again, as we enjoy the fatherhood of God, 
Can we understand where we stand with Him? And so we must get busy learning from and about our adopted Father in Heaven, how He cares for us and loves us. An unbiblical view of fatherhood can also project upon God a very poor understanding of who He is. You say, well, I can't think of God as Father because I had a terrible father. Yes, but you never had a terrible heavenly father. Your heavenly father has never been terrible to you. To project upon the heavenly father those aberrations of imperfect earthly fathers would be to do great harm to the image of the Father in heaven. It would be, in fact, to break a commandment of God. It would be worshiping an image that is not valid. It isn't God. Further, the theological aberrations of legalism and antinomianism also project an unbiblical characterization upon God. Legalism projects upon the character of God that He is no loving Father but one whose only interest is in being obeyed, that his rules are harsh and capricious, that he has no affection or tenderness for his children. You sow me someone entrenched in legalism, and I will show you an individual that is projected upon this heavenly loving Father, the aberrations of legalism. That isn't God. That's not our heavenly Father. That's not the one who has adopted you into his kingdom. Further, the aberration of antinomianism does the same thing. It projects upon the Father that which simply isn't true. It separates God's law from His person. It separates the grace of Christ from the law of God written on the heart. It projects the idea that God intends to leave us spiritually the way He found us and not transform us into the likeness of His Son. It projects the idea that God's character revealed in the moral law is meaningless. It's easy to get the wrong idea about a loving father. It's easy to project upon him natural leadership or the aberrations of antinomianism or legalism or even of your own imperfect father. But God reveals to us in His Word His goodness to us. That He plans for His children. That He persuades them. That He has a perfect plan to take them all the way from the beginning and the foundation of the very world until the glorification of them in heaven for an eternity. That's our Father in heaven. This very idea of being led, of enjoying being a son or daughter of God is something we must get right in our understanding of our great and loving God. Or we will live our lives under a cloud of harsh suspicion and performance-based affection and project to others this very poor impression of who God really is. Psalm 27.10, we read in our responsive reading, says, For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. He is a loving father. He goes beyond your earthly understanding of even the best mother and father. He plans for you. He purposefully and intentionally uses every act in your life, draws into your life those who can help you toward glorification. 
The context of fatherhood is that of assurance. Assurance is based on being led by God. Most are led by their own desires. Most do not think for themselves. They do what others do. Sons begin to look like their father and begin to act like their father. Being led. Perhaps a helpful synonym for that would simply be the idea of being teachable. Can you be led of God? Will you listen to the truths of God in such a way as you intend to follow them? Matthew 18.3 says, Unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. It's the same idea. Do you have the disposition of one who has been redeemed? And that disposition is a childlike faith, not childish faith, a childlike faith. Can I follow? Will I be led by the Spirit? Or will I insist and harden and so forth? This is the idea. This is what the Apostle Paul is drawing us to here again. This is not, this is not uh, uh, an exhortation to live a holy life. This is an exhortation to understand where you are with God. Are you being led by the Spirit or not? Is He your Heavenly Father in all of His glory and warmth and goodness or not? And if He is your Heavenly Father, then I say, rejoice! And enter more fully into the enjoyment of Him. And if He isn't your Heavenly Father, if you're not being led by the Spirit, then I would urge you to go to Him. To go to Him. Trusting that what He says, He will do. That He will redeem you and bring you into the family of God. Let us pray.